Good morning. Uh, my name is Erin Krushevich. This is my husband, Jason. We're a part of... Oh, thank you. We did not get that first service. Uh, we're a part of the Calvary Reach Orphan Care Ministry here, along with a bunch of other cool families. And we're excited about this morning and want to give you just a little bit of background so you kind of understand how this morning came to be. It did not have its beginnings here at Calvary. It actually started in Zambia. And in Zambia, a local church realized that there was an incredible need right in their community um, with so many children who were orphaned. And so as a church, they decided to do what they could to come alongside and bring hope to the kids in their community who didn't have families. And this ignited a movement that started in Zambia and then went across the continent of Africa and eventually made its way here to the U.S., where the global church takes a Sunday in November to really pause and consider and reflect and pray about the ways that we can come alongside children without families and be the hands and feet of Jesus for them. Um, there are an estimated 153 million children who are orphaned worldwide. 18 million of those have lost both parents. And there are about 400,000 children living in the U.S. foster system. So this is a holy assignment. God sets the lonely in families. He is the father of the fatherless. And James 1 talks about the fact that pure and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans. This isn't just about kids in Africa or in our foster system. This is our story, too. When Jesus teaches us about God, he taught us to call him our father. Ephesians tells us that we are adopted into God's family, and we become heirs with Christ in God. So my hope for today is that you'll see that Children need a voice, but this is also the, our story at the very heart of the gospel, and that it's God's heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask for you to speak to us today. I pray that you would give us a sense about how we can advocate for children who have no voice. Would you work in us and inspire us, God? Give us ideas about big things and small things that we can do and that we can join you, God, in this thing that you are already doing. In Jesus' name, amen. We're excited to introduce our speaker today. His name is Pastor Johnny Carr, and he is wife, or not wife, he's husband to Beth and father to five kids. Two of those came to his family through adoption in China, one through the foster system. He has spent many years as a full-time pastor. He also worked with Bethany Christian Services as their director of church partnerships on a national level. And he is author of this awesome book, which I highly recommend, and we sell in the bookstore. You should buy it, um, Orphan Justice. And it talks about how we can care for the orphans beyond adopting and the fact that we can't do everything, but everybody can do something. And he's become a great voice to challenge our church on how we can all answer this call to care for children without families. So please welcome with us Johnny Carr. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, this is my busy travel time, so I've been in several different states the past couple of weeks, and I've collected the allergens of each one. 
And so you will have to bear with me this morning as I uh, will have to depend on some water here more than usual. Um, it's, it's, uh, it really is uh, an honor for me to be here because of a special connection to your church. Uh, the book Orphan Justice would not be in print today if it were not for Yates, the Yates family, Yates and Yates, uh, 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 the, the firm that they have. And a couple of years ago that a, a mutual friend introduced uh, me and Curtis at a conference and we sat down in a back room and he listened to this redneck from Alabama tell my story. And uh, they believed in, in it and believed in our idea for this book. And so it's not often that I get to thank them publicly, but I want to do that today. Uh, and I know, I think, Celie, you're here. And, and uh, so thank you for, for giving a, a chance to me and my family in this. And it's given us some great opportunities to share our story. Um, it, and, and thank you for recognizing the veterans. I, I grew up in a military town. And Anniston, Alabama, which is halfway between Birmingham and Atlanta, and right outside my neighborhood was Fort McClellan, and uh, I met some of the guys after the first service that, that had been through there for, for some of their military time. Uh, way back in the day, it used to be a very popular place for MP school and, and uh, uh, chemical training, uh, the WAC Museum, and, and a lot of the, that was it's located there, and, and so the military's always been a special part of our family and our life. Today I'm going to share with you um, uh, our story of how God worked in our life, and certainly I'm going to talk a little bit about adoption and orphan care, but we are going to dive into the Scripture too and see what we can learn this morning from Scripture. And I don't want you to tune me out, because you may think, well, you know, first of all, as a guest speaker, and blah, 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 and he's going to talk about adoption, that's not for us, and um, hopefully today, as, as, as they said earlier, uh, that, that no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And I hope to uh, maybe open your eyes and challenge you uh, and allow the Lord to speak through me today to show us what His Word does say and some things that we can learn, that there is a place for all of us to be able to dive into this area of caring for uh, orphaned and vulnerable children who are, are living around the world. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, we're going to talk, look at the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, it's one of the most common stories that uh, people know in our culture, other than the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story, and the resurrection, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Easter story. Uh, most people have heard that in, in the United States or in America. But the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan, though, is also very famous. I, I was watching a football game one night, NFL game, and uh, John Madden was talking about Derek Brooks. We used to live in Pensacola, Florida, and uh, Derek was from Pensacola and actually went to the same school that my wife taught at, and, and there's a lot of poverty in, in, in that area, and Derek would, would, would just send truckloads of supplies back up into Pensacola. And so John Madden was talking about the good things that Derek was doing off the field, and he called him a good Samaritan. And, you know, I knew everybody knew exactly what he was talking about, someone who did something good for someone else. The, the last episode of Seinfeld was the Good Samaritan episode. You remember that? Jerry and his friends, they get arrested because they didn't help a guy who was being robbed and they all laughed at him. And so they got arrested on the Good Samaritan law. So it's something that's very common, but yet, like most Bible stories, when we really dig into it, there's a lot more to it than what we just see on the surface. There's a lot more to it than someone who just did something good for someone else. So let's read it together and see what we can learn this morning. 
And verse 25 is where I'm going to start. He says, and on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This guy was knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He was an expert. And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's got his chest poked out because he's an expert. And he was trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? What do you read of it? You're the expert. You tell me. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. Now, right here, I can almost imagine him being like old Barney Fife when Barney had the right answer. Remember how Barney's chest would poke out? He knew. But yet, as he got to the second part, I could almost see him begin to deflate. Because so many times, these experts would try to trick Jesus with their questions, and Jesus would always just turn the tables right back on them. And so, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Or or, or then he follows that up with, And love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the deal. He knew that he didn't love his neighbor as himself. The crowd around him probably knew it, and Jesus certainly knew it. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. The next verse is how we know that he's been tricked. That Jesus has turned it back on him. Some modern translations say in this next verse, looking for a loophole. Here my version says, but wanting to justify himself. He asked Jesus, well exactly who is my neighbor? And it's out of that question that Jesus then tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to where the man was, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put a man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So which of these three was neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he replied, the one who showed mercy on him. It's an interesting story. It's an interesting choice of characters that Jesus uses. The four characters in this story, one is the man who's beat up and left on the side of the road. And and it's interesting because we don't know anything about this man. We don't know what nationality he was. We don't know where he was from. We don't know anything. We just know that this is a person that was on this road that was beat up and left for dead. And then Jesus uses three characters that will walk past him. The first is the priest. The second is the Levite. And he says, as they came, each one individually came and saw the man. They literally stepped to the other side of the road and kept on going. Why would Jesus choose the priest and the Levite for this story? They were the religious leaders of the day. In our terminology, we would say that was the pastors and the deacons or the elders who came to where this man was, who was dying on the side of the road, 
And they stepped to the other side and kept on going. And growing up in North Alabama, uh, about once every three years, we'd get a good snow. You know, like an inch or two. <laughs> and then we'd be shut down for about a month. And it was crazy. And uh, I live in Pittsburgh now. Last year we had 68 inches of snow. So a little bit different. But growing up in Alabama like that, you know, usually you get 33 degrees and it's this cold rain. And, and in that part of Anniston where I'm from, it's all these rolling hills and lots of woods. And uh, just imagine yourself out driving late one night and you're on these windy roads and this cold, cold rain just above freezing. And you, a deer jumps out in front and your car goes off into the ditch and you, you can't get it out. It's stuck. You, you reach for your cell phone and it's busted up or... If you like me, you have Sprint, you have no coverage anyway. Or <laughs> and you're thinking, well, man, this is how I'm going to die. This is how it's going to end for me. I can't believe it. This is so anticlimactic. I mean, there's nothing exciting about this. I just went off in the ditch, but I'm going to die of hypothermia out here. And before you know it, there's a car coming. And you're thinking, now, wait a minute. Lord, there is never a car on this road. There's never anybody out here this time of night. This is a miracle. And as the car gets closer, you look. And you are so shocked and amazed to realize that it's Pastor Dave. And he looks at you and you look at him and he drives right on by. And you think, now, wait a minute, Lord, that's not how this is supposed to go. I mean, this could have been a movie and a book, and this has been great, and Yates could have helped me out with it. And, 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 and then you hear another car, and it's bigger, and you look up, and it's, this, it's a bus coming down through there, and right on the front, Calvary Church. And then inside of it, you look, and it's the leaders of the church, and the elders, and deacons, and Sunday school teachers, and leaders, small group leaders, and you're thinking, well, that's why the pastor didn't stop. They're going to stop and help. And they look at you, and you look at them, and they drive right on by. I think that's the story Jesus is telling. It was the religious establishment. It was the leaders who didn't stop to help this man. But a Samaritan. Man, who were the Samaritans? Oh, good night. They hated, the Jews hated the Samaritans. I'm talking, they had a terrible nickname for them, what they would call half-breeds. And it had this long history that went back and intermarriage and all these other things. But, oh, man, they just despised him. And he says, but a Samaritan, when he came where he was, he had compassion. He had pity. What I want us to look at right now, I want us to look at four things that it cost that Samaritan by entering into this man's pain. You see, when we enter into the pain of someone else's life, it will cost us some things. And there are four things that I see in this story that it cost this Samaritan. The first thing that it cost him was some emotions. It cost him emotionally. You see, that's the way God wired us. When we talk about real fellowship with each other, it's more than just some coffee and donuts. Real fellowship is when someone is hurting and we enter into the pain that they are going through in their life and we go through that with them. And what that costs us is, is when we get up and to go home and we get up to turn away and leave, we can't just flip a switch and turn that off. Because God wired us in such a way that when we enter into that pain with someone, and we're going through it with them, whether it's someone who's found out that they have cancer, they've gotten a bad report from the doctor, or, or someone who's going through a divorce, or someone who's lost a job, or, or someone who's, who's lost a loved one in their family, and we enter into that with them, we hurt with them. 
that's the way God wired us. I had a friend that was a state trooper. And in 1994, on March 27th, it was my wife and I's first wedding anniversary. Uh, we were having a big day at our church. It was Palm Sunday and, and a, the power went out. Terrible storm outside and the, the electricity went out and it never came back on, which was kind of unusual. We got home later that day and learned that a major tornado had hit and gone all the way up our county and up on the very northern end of our county was a little Methodist church that would seat about 80 people. They had about 100 that day because it was a Palm Sunday service where the little children, they had 20, who were going to get up and do a little program and they were all lined up on the wall waiting to come up when that tornado went by and the entire roof just sat down on the congregation killing all 20 of the kids. And my friend, the state trooper, was the first emergency personnel on the scene. And what he saw that day was so devastating that a year later he had to take an early retirement because of the emotional toll that it had taken on him by entering into the pain of others. When we get involved in the hurts of others' lives, it's going to cost us emotionally. The second thing that we see that it cost him was some time. You see, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a road of commerce. And so people that were traveling on this road generally either had goods with them that they were taking to sell or they had just purchased or they had money. So they were going to market to buy things. And so that's why the robbers would actually hang out on this road. It was a very strategic road for the robbers to be on. And if you were on this road... You wanted to make sure you got from point A to point B as quickly as possible. You had an agenda. You had a schedule. And so for this Samaritan to stop and help this man, it was costing him some of his own time, which meant that he had a change in his schedule. The third thing is related to that. It also means there's a change in our priorities. Because it will cost us some comfort. This road actually had a nickname and it was called the Bloody Way. Because of the thieves and robbers that were there. Certain parts of the road actually had garrisons set up where guards would actually hang out on it to try to help the people. But they couldn't guard the whole thing. So for the priest and the Levite, maybe in their mind, it was just too risky to stop and help the guy. Maybe they had justified in their minds that, man, you know what? I know there's a guy here who's dying, but if I stop and help him, they're going to jump out and beat me up too. And then there's going to be two of us on the side of the road dying and we're going to be helpless to help each other. So maybe they had just justified in their minds that it was just a little bit too risky to actually stop and help him. But when we have a change in our priorities, it means that we aren't considering ourselves first, but we are truly considering the needs of others first. And that means sometimes we have to take a risk and get involved. And sometimes it can lead us into scary places. Sometimes it can lead us into some uncomfortable places. I do a lot of this traveling and not long ago I was in Chicago last year, I think it was, and it was uh, in the winter, so it was getting dark early. And I was heading back from the south side up to Midway Airport. And 
down below that area I just put into my GPS. I had to stop and refuel the rental car. And so uh, I just put in GPS, a you know, gas station, and pull off the road. And if you're familiar with that area, that's the area of Chicago that's known for the gang activity and, and, and the murders and all those types of things. It's really a rough section of town. And, and when I pulled in to get the gas, I kind of looked around and I realized I was the only one with a sport coat on. And I'm thinking, man, just don't make eye contact with anybody. Just get the gas in and get out of here. And as I was pumping the gas, it was as if the Lord was speaking to me and he said, hey, big boy, you know, you travel around preaching this sermon all the time about taking a risk. What if you looked up right now and there was a lady's car broken down across the street? Would you have the guts to go and help her? I pondered that for a minute and I said, Lord, if you'll give me five minutes and get back on the interstate, I'll talk to you about it. <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to go there. Sometimes I, when I first really started studying this, I thought, well, this priest and this Levite, they were just cold hearted. Maybe they were just too scared. Maybe the risk was just too much. Maybe it was going to cost them more than they wanted to give up. The fourth thing is it cost him some money. It cost him some money. He took out his own oil and wine. Pro- probably had either just purchased it or was taking to sell it possibly. And he poured that on him. The, 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 the oil was for soothing and the wine was like a disinfectant for healing. And, and he poured that on. To this man and then he took him to the inn and he bought him a room took out two denarii and then he said and when i come back through i'll pay for whatever else he owes put it on my tab let him stay as long as he needs to stay give him to eat whatever he needs to eat and when i come back through i'll settle up with you and i'll pay for it you see when we get involved in the lives of others When we get involved with those who are in pain, it will cost us as well. It'll cost us emotionally and some time and some of our own comfort and some of our own money. Now here, I want you to hear very clearly what I'm about to say. I did not come here from Pittsburgh to tell you that I'm a good Samaritan. Frankly, I came to confess to you that for years I was the priest who kept stepping to the other side of the road. I loved the good parts of ministry. I loved all the fun parts of it, but I didn't want to take the big risks sometimes that were involved. But all that changed for us back in 2005. Back earlier than that, my wife and I were going to Jacksonville State University, and that's where we first met. Beth was studying to be a deaf educator and was very, very gifted in sign language. And I was speaking at a Baptist campus ministry one night, doing some kind of announcement or something. Frankly, I just wanted to get in front of everybody because it was a good way to get girls. And so I was always trying to get up in front. And so here's Beth over here signing and interpreting. And the one deaf girl who was there was Heather Whitestone. Some of you remember Heather in the mid-90s. She became Miss America, the first Miss America with a disability. And uh, so Beth was her interpreter. And I thought Beth was prettier than Miss America, so I chased Beth around. And we started dating, and, and we hadn't been dating too long, but we were starting to get fairly serious. And so she said, you need to understand that whoever marries me will agree that we will one day adopt a child that is deaf. And that's a pretty heavy conversation for early on in dating. I looked at her, saw how pretty she was, and I said, I've dreamed of that all my life. Where have you been? <laughs> And that starts our relationship, one big fat lie. 
Little did I know that uh, this was more than just a little dream that she had, but this was something that God had truly put into her heart. We did get married, and God had blessed us with two great kids by birth, Heather and Jared, and uh, I was at this time serving in Pensacola, Florida at one of the fastest-growing churches in the panhandle of Florida. We were living 30 minutes from the beach down on the beautiful white sand beaches of Pensacola, and we were living the American dream. And one day my missions pastor came in and said, Johnny, I've got a friend coming through town and he's a missionary who works with the Delph in Belarus. So I thought, Beth, and you might be interested in meeting him and hearing about his ministry. And of course we were. So we went out to dinner with, with Bob and Bob began to share with us that not were these just deaf uh, folks he was working with, but it was actually a deaf orphanage. All the kids in this orphanage were deaf. And I said, check, please, I need to get out of here because <laughs> I know where this conversation is about to go. And sure enough, that began, that was in January 2005, and, and um, that began the conversation again. In February, I came home from a deacon's meeting about a month later, and we were still talking about it. And, and I said, you know, tomorrow I'll call and get some answers, and, and, and because I was scared about the process. I was scared about how much it would cost. I was scared about, can I love a child that wasn't born to me? All these crazy things. And, and, and so the next day I, I got on the internet and searched out and found this uh, agency right here in Orange County, California, actually nightlight agency. And I called and talked to Ron Stoddard and I'll never forget it. And I said, uh, you know, this is our story and this is the deal. And he said, well, you can't adopt from Belarus, uh, governmental wise that's shut down. That's not an option. Uh, what are you thinking? And I said, well, we don't really care where the child is from, but we feel like we can, we are uniquely gifted to, you know, raise a deaf child. So deaf and no other disabilities. I'll come back to that in a minute. And, um, and under the age of six, if he's good in football, that'll be a plus, but no, I didn't, I didn't say that. Ron said, well, that's kind of specific. If I ever hear of anything, I'll let you know. 10 minutes later, he called me back and said, check your email. And when I did, this is what I opened up. No, he's not that sweet. He is 13 years old and stinks to high heavens now. His name was Guya Zhou. He was in central China. And seven months to the day later, Labor Day 2005, we found ourselves in a hotel room with this little boy walking in to meet us. The next day we loaded up in a van and we drove about an hour to the city that he was from and we had a meeting to go to at his orphanage to do some of the paperwork and, and as we drove into the orphanage gates, James began to look around like, oh, I know this place. But then as they stopped the van and we began to get out, he put his head on my shoulder and put his arm around me as if to say, oh, well, that was fun for a while. Not having any language, he had no sign language, couldn't hear, so I just tried to hold him to let him know that, no, you're my son now. We're just here for a quick visit and then we're going home. And we did go in for a short meeting with the staff and then they took us around to, to visit the rest of the orphanage and, and as we walked into this courtyard area, there were about 20 special needs kids who were in these little makeshift high chairs that they couldn't get in and out uh, on their own. They, they sat there pretty much all day and had a tray on the front and a hole in the seat with a pan underneath it. And as we walked through there, it was kind of like being in a movie where for, for part of it, it felt like you'd just been there forever and then the other part of you was like, I'm not even here. It's just really hard to describe the emotions as we walked through there. And then we went into the baby room and inside the baby room, there were as many beds as they could possibly pack around in this little small room. And each bed had two babies in it, feet to feet. 
And they had the very same blank stares that we saw in the kids out in the courtyard. None were crying, none were moving around. And as we stood there, I just remember thinking, I can't let Heather and Jared even see what I'm seeing here. We later learned that at this orphanage, 95 out of 100 kids passed away that came into this one. And we were watching babies die right in front of us. And these weren't just some kids in a picture anymore. These were my son's friends. And it got really serious really quickly. And as I pushed Heather and Jared back towards the door, James began to cry. And his grip around my neck got so tight that he literally was choking me. I want you to understand something. I love China. For any of you that might be Chinese here. It is a country that we have come to love. It is part of our family. And these people weren't cold-hearted people. They were doing the best they could with what they had. But they just didn't have much to be able to care for these kids. And as we walked out of that orphanage that day, our life was forever changed. And as a pastor, I became convicted. I became convicted because as I began to study through Scripture to see what God's heart is, and and I began to study two things. I began to say, what, what does the Bible say? And then secondly, what is the reality? And as I look back through the Old Testament, man, you could just see this theme throughout the Old Testament of, of caring for the widow, the orphan, and the alien, or the sojourner, or the, 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 the one who's passing through. And, it's, and really what he's saying there is it's the helpless. And caring for them is so important. And he gave some specific commands and specific ways of doing that. And then in the New Testament, we get to the book of James, which you heard from earlier. Now, here's the interesting thing about James. Remember, that's where we get the verse, faith without works is dead. James was all about making sure that we were following through. And there's all these emphatic statements within the book of James where he says, do this and don't do that, or do this and don't do that. And in verse 26, he says, when you run your mouth all the time, (laughs) this is my translation, your religion is useless. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, but pure and undefiled religion is this. Caring for orphans and widows in their distress and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Now, as a good Southern Baptist Alabama boy, I was pretty good at keeping myself unspotted from the world. But when it came to caring for orphans and widows in their distress, we didn't have anything in our church. We didn't, we didn't talk about it. It wasn't preached on. We didn't have any kind of special ministries. There was no way for us to get involved in that way. And that's what God began to convict me about. And then I began to see what is their distress. Where he says, in their distress. And so that's when I began to study what is the reality. As you heard earlier, 153 million children in the world that are considered orphaned and vulnerable. That definition means that they have lost one or both parents. You may ask, well, why in the world would you consider a child that's lost one parent of uh, a, a vulnerable child because in most countries there's still very much a patriarchal sense where the father has all the rights where the male dominant person is, is he has all the rights to things such as education and, and 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 medical care and land ownership and all these types of things and so in many of these developing countries when the father dies the mother and the children lose all rights And two-thirds of the time, it is the father who dies first. 
I have a good friend from Zimbabwe, and at 12 years old, his father passed away. While his mother was still living and his sisters, the men of the village had a meeting right after his father was buried. With his mother standing there, they determined what his future would be, and they, from that day forward, called him an orphan. So that is the reality in many other countries. It's hard for us to even understand that kind of thinking, I know. But that is the reality. And because of that, when, when there's dire poverty, when, when they are exposed to all these other elements of life, then we begin to see all these other areas that begin to overlap into their lives. And as I began to look at all these different social justice issues that we, that I, as a good Southern Baptist Alabama boy, had shied away from in the past, because that's what the liberals did, I began to see these were the very issues that orphans were facing. And I knew that as a believer, I knew the clear teaching of Scripture that I needed to be caring for orphans. And I began to see what HIV and AIDS was doing and how many children had been orphaned because of HIV and AIDS. In China, my my kid's province, there was a big scandal there years ago where the government was buying blood plasma and they were not using clean needles and they were actually spreading HIV within that province and thousands and thousands and thousands of farmers died of HIV and those kids were ostracized. In this one little area, over 40 hidden orphanages for kids whose parents had died of HIV and AIDS because nobody wanted to touch them, nobody wanted to be around them. And we began to look at issues like poverty and trafficking and here within our own culture of foster care, that to know that 400,000 kids today are in the foster care system right here within our own community, right here within our own state, Of that, 100,000 of those kids are what's called a, they've had TPR, Termination of Parental Rights. That means the judge has already said that child can never go back to their original family. These aren't blonde-haired, blue-eyed, healthy infants. Some of these kids are 14 years old and 16 years old or 10 years old. Some of them have physical disabilities. Some, almost all of them have emotional trauma from abuse and neglect that they've been through. Many of them have faced things that most of us have never, ever had to face in life. And we began to ask the question and look around and say, where is the church? How can we continue just to go on our merry way and not in some form or fashion begin to give people opportunities to experience pure and undefiled religion and care for these kids in meaningful ways? And so churches just like yours are now forming these ministry teams. And right out here in the lobby and and outside beyond, there there are, I think, 14 different organizations represented here today. You've got this little flyer that's inside, and they'll talk about this later. But there's all types of ways that you can get involved. It may be some families here that have adopted some children that have special needs or, or have adopted children that have come from really significant backgrounds. It may be that you've got a special talent. I had a lady come up to me after the first service and say, I'm a speech pathologist. Certainly I could be used by and be a help to some family here in our church that's adopted a child that needs a speech pathologist. I'd be grateful to help with something like that. There are so many ways that God has gifted you. It may just be a pat on the back. It may be a dinner one night to say to this family over here that's adopted a couple of kids and they're really having a hard time to say, you know what, we're going to treat you to dinner. 
right before we left Pensacola, got a call from Gabby Boyd. Gabby was one of my favorite people in the world. He was a World War II veteran. Gabby and his wife, Lou, asked me and Beth to come over and have dinner with them. And in Pensacola, when you do that, you have fried shrimp and cheese grits. And man, she put on a spread for us that night. And it was so delicious. And we were eating. And Gabby looked at me, 83 years old. And he said, Johnny, we love what you, what you and Beth are doing for those kids. And we're too old to adopt any. But we just wanted to prepare a meal for you tonight to say that we love you and we support you and we want to thank you and we wish that we could be involved in orphan care. And I said, Gabby, you are doing orphan care right now because you have no idea what kind of encouragement it is for me and Beth to know that you would take your time and you would prepare a meal for us and have us over just to say those words to us. Right before we left to adopt James, one of our senior adult ladies, she came by me and she slipped a little piece of paper in my hand and she said, it's not much, but you're going to need it. And I knew she was on a fixed income. I knew she didn't have much money. And I walked away and I looked down. It was a $10 bill. And for her, that was a big sacrifice. I wanted to give it back. Then I thought, no, because every time she sees James, she's going to know she had a part and bringing him home and giving him a new family. In 2007, we adopted Shali. Shali's also profoundly deaf and from China. And then in 2011, we adopted this little fella. His name's JJ. And I promise you, he is not that sweet. That boy is going to be the death of me. (laughs) That boy, he's a miracle. JJ was born at 25 weeks. He weighed a pound and three ounces. He had what's called a diaphragmic hernia. Children born at full term with diaphragmic hernias have about a 50-50 chance of living. I've literally had doctors who, after hearing his story and meeting him, have, have wept, saying there is no way this kid should even be alive. He just came off of his G-tube. For the first five years of his life, he took all of his nutrition through a G-tube because he couldn't swallow. And now he's still profoundly deaf, but other than that, JJ's off all of his medications. He's starting to eat by mouth now. The G-tube has been removed. And he is going to have some kind of testimony as he continues to grow older. And this is our entire family. Here's what I want you to see about this. That is a picture of the gospel. Because as was referenced earlier, Jesus talks about, and Paul talks about this, this idea of us being adopted into God's family. And it doesn't matter what our backgrounds are. It doesn't matter what color we are or or what our culture is. And Paul said in Galatians 4, he said, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. It's that term of endearment. Some would say that it's like saying to him, Daddy. I love you. And he says the spirit comes into us, giving us the ability to have that kind of relationship with him. And you are no longer a slave, he says, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Here's the thing. One day my wife and I will pass away and those five kids will sit around the table with some lawyer and he'll have our will out. And he's not going to take our money and divide it up between two kids. He's going to take all $16 and divide it between all five. 
<laughs> because each one has equal rights to the Carr family name. Each one is an equal heir to the family. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us when we are adopted into God's family, when we accept Him as our Savior and we enter into relationship with Him. He adopts us. And what He's saying here in Galatians is He's made you an heir where you have a new name, a new future, and a new family. That is the picture of the gospel itself. So what does God have for you today? I don't know. There's all types of ways for you to get involved. Some of you, it may be God is really touching your heart about adoption or becoming a foster parent or working in safe families, great organization out here that you can get involved with. Or maybe God is, is touching you today because you've never really come into relationship with him. You've never been adopted into God's family. But whatever it is, I pray that you would just be open and say, Lord, where would you have me serve? What would you have me do? So that I can be obedient and enjoy pure and undefiled religion. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity to share today. Thank you for what you're doing in and through this church and so many here. God, um, so many great stories already that I know I've heard today and so many more that I haven't. But Lord, I just pray that as today becomes a catalyst forward, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open and we'd be obedient to whatever it is that you're saying to us. We would listen and respond. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Our prayer is that you have been encouraged, you've been challenged, you've been inspired, uh, even just hearing what you heard today. Uh, we've had families, people in our church who have already responded to the call uh, to care for the orphans. We're in this series called Followers of Jesus, and part of being a follower of Jesus is caring uh, for the fatherless. And here's how some people at Calvary have been doing that. Check out the screens. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We cared for orphans by hosting two young boys from Latvia this summer. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We're helping orphans by being involved with Acres of Love, an organization in South Africa that rescues kids and makes sure that all children belong in families. I'm going to help orphans by sharing my room with a boy from South Africa who's eventually going to become my brother. I help a girl who is in an orphanage to go to college. And I help a boy in Rwanda named Gene Bosco so, um, so he doesn't become an orphan. Well, we have two adopted grandchildren who we are helping our daughter and son-in-law raise by well, having them for overnighters and um, helping with homework sometimes after school since mom and dad work full time. And um, quite often we just are there to diffuse some difficult situations, but we're enjoying it very much. Giving love to a baby impacts their entire developmental future. But even more important is giving love to teenagers. Every teenager needs to know that they have a voice and their voice matters and they need someone who will validate their emotions and be their champion and their defender and someone that they know that they can depend on. 
And we got connected with Safe Families for Children. So we've been uh, hosting kids who just need some temporary housing. And we have two children of our own, a three-year-old and a two-year-old, and a baby on the way. So it's easy to think we're too busy to help them. But we know how hard this job can be, and the moms that come to Safe Families, they don't have anyone. And they're trying to raise their kids as best as they can, but they can't do it alone. So we're here to help them. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We care for orphans by sponsoring a vulnerable child in Ethiopia and by working through a microfinance organization to loan money to single parents who are entrepreneurs in the third world. And we're also an adoptive family. We brought our son Daniel home from Ethiopia six years ago. He is no longer orphaned. He's now a part of our family and we call him our own. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We care for orphans. Bye. We are partnering with an organization called Safe Families. We've been a host family with them for seven years, and we've uh, made an impact on several kids' life that's been very uh, rewarding for us. We have adopted a child, uh, Jaden, and we are trying to get more involved with organizations that are having an impact on human trafficking. And these are our kids. This is our family, Liam and Kate. We adopted them from Russia and we're teaching them to appreciate their stories and have a love for orphan care. We care about orphans because we were orphans once. I am caring for orphans by supporting my daughter in her Kenya-based Cocos Village orphanage. I also spearhead a letter-writing financial campaign from the side of the, the world. And in 2012, I was able to visit Patricia Sowell in her Discover to Recover Center in Kenya. We care for adoptive families who need respite. We walk uh, kids' walks, or I walk 50 miles every year for a home of kids in South Africa to help keep them protected and the medical care and school needs. And I also have a tiny bit of familiarity of what it's like to be an orphan and know how much we need a village to take care of us, raise us, love us, and remind us of how valued we are as God's children. No one can do everything. We are caring for orphans by welcoming kids from our community into our home. We are a foster family and a host family with Safe Families for Children. We love kids. We love Jesus. We want to offer you some next steps. What can you do beyond even sitting in this chair right here? And I have my good buddy Curtis Yates to let us know about a brand new thing that's going to be offered here at Calvary. As you've heard this morning, orphan care is so much bigger than and goes far beyond adoption. And yet, <clears throat> adoption is a crucial component of orphan care. It can provide the best kind of permanency for orphans, a forever family. My wife and I adopted six years ago, and that process proved to be quite a faith journey for us. But not everyone is called to adopt. In fact, I don't recommend that anyone adopt unless and until they're quite certain that God is calling them to adopt. You see, adoption, the process, and raising children who are adopted can be trying and challenging at times, and you will need the assurance of that calling to lean on in those tough times, to remind yourself of why you're doing this, and to persevere. With that said, there are probably people here in our own church who are willing and open and even being called by God to welcome a child into their family through adoption. We want to join with you. We want to support you as you step out in faith to follow that calling.
In my own story, my wife Karen and I discussed and prayed about adoption for many months, and she pretty quickly became convinced that God was calling us to adopt. I was open to it. It was a little slower, and uh, I got to a point where I actually wanted to do it. I, was, I had a desire to adopt, but I was struggling with the financial hurdle. You see, we were looking into uh, an international adoption, and I knew how expensive that was going to be. And I just couldn't figure out how we were going to pay for it. I sought the Lord, and I listened, and I prayed, and I listened, and I just wanted to hear clearly from God that He was going to provide. I needed that assurance. I needed to know that He was, there was beyond a shadow of a doubt, He was going to provide all that money. But I just wasn't hearing what I wanted to hear from Him. And then one Sunday, Pastor Dave preached a sermon about asking God for big things. The kinds of things that can't happen unless God intervenes. I remember vividly at the end of the sermon, he gave an invitation to come down and pray with a pastor and elder and make that kind of a, of a request of God. And my wife, Karen, turns and looks at me at the end of the sermon with this look in her eyes that says, we're going down front to pray, right? <laughs> so we did. We stood up and we came down here. We found Pastor Matt Davis. And I remember walking up to Matt with tears in my eyes. And I said, Matt, we want to adopt, but we don't know how to pay for it. And so we prayed with Matt. And we made a big request of a big God. At that same time, I was reading a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And I got to a point in the book where the author asks this fairly pointed question. He asks, is there any challenge in your life right now that's large enough that you have no hope of doing it apart from God's help? If not, consider the possibility that you are seriously under-challenged. He goes on to tell the story of the Israelites standing at the threshold of the Promised Land, And those who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant had to actually step foot into the waters of the River Jordan before the waters parted for them. And when I got to that part, I realized that God wasn't going to give me the assurance and the clear word that I was looking for. He was actually asking me to step out in faith and to trust Him. Shortly after that, we filed our application with an adoption agency, and we wrote our first check of many. And soon after that, a friend told me that Upon learning that we were in the process and upon learning about how expensive it was, he told me that he and his wife wanted to help financially. We then found an organization that would receive contributions from friends and family on a tax-deductible basis and then would reimburse us as we submitted uh, receipts for the expenses that we were incurring out of those funds. We let a few handfuls of our friends and family know about the opportunity to support our adoption in this way. And the funds started coming in. God began to provide. We knew that we were embarking on a journey that was going to be stretching and challenging for us. And we had a pretty good idea of what sort of leap of faith we had taken in starting the process without knowing exactly where all this money was going to come from. And to start seeing those funds coming in and gifts both large and small from friends and family, it was encouraging to say the least. It it helped us to understand that we weren't in this alone. We felt so supported. In our story, I was the one who was dragging my feet when it came to our adoption. And I learned later, actually through my friend Johnny, that I wasn't unusual in that regard, that husbands are almost always the last ones to get on board. And many times, as Johnny alluded to in his own story as well, it's that financial component that is the hang-up for us fathers and husbands. 
And so it's because of that, because of my experience with this, that I'm thrilled to be able to announce to you today and share with you that we have established an orphan care fund here at Calvary. We now have the opportunity as friends and family and as the body of Christ to help families who are stepping out, stepping forward in faith to care for orphan and vulnerable children with that accompanying financial burden. We want to be able to provide that boost of encouragement to these families that says, we support your calling to care for these orphans. And the first way that we're going to support you is with helping you with that but sometimes very significant financial burden. And then we're going to help you in a hundred other ways, like having you over for dinner or babysitting your children so that you can get a break. <clears throat> because we want to do everything we can to make certain that your adoption or your other orphan care efforts are successful. So from now on, any gifts that you give to Calvary that are designated orphan care fund are going to go into this fund. And I'm thrilled to be able to tell you that through the gifts of just a handful or so of people so far and through a recent Kids Walk for Hope, our our orphan care fund already has a balance of over $13,000 in it, which is a great start, but we want to see that grow considerably. We want to be able to provide real, tangible, financial support to these families who are stepping forward and are willing and wanting to welcome a child into their family or to care for orphans in other ways. Uh, On the envelopes in the rack in front of you, you won't see a category there for Orphan Care Fund, but just know that at any time you can write Orphan Care Fund on your check or on your envelope and it will get into this fund. So if you are uh, interested in adoption, if you are already in the process of pursuing an adoption, if you are interested in or already pursuing Uh, other orphan care initiatives that have that financial hurdle associated with them and you're interested in applying to receive funds out of this out of our orphan care fund to help you please inquire of pastor matt or of our church cfo and fellow adoptive father michael wells yes our orphan care fund will be one next step that you can do not only today but really any sunday and and beyond here in the life and history of calvary church A couple other next steps we want to give you is that as you saw that insert in your bulletin, pull that out, and there's a little tear-off portion at the bottom of that. We'd love for you just to fill out your basic information, and prayerfully, as you leave today, walk into the lobby and hand your information to one of our nonprofit partners that is in one form or fashion caring for orphans. This is kind of a step of faith, just saying, okay, God, I'm going to give them my information, and then God, whatever you want to do with it, I'm going to trust you in that. So I encourage you to use that, utilize that as a next step. Then about 15 minutes after our service here today, we're going to be hosting a lunch and fellowship hall. We're going to have a Q&A with Johnny, and that's open for anyone here to come to. And then we're going to be hearing a little bit more about one of our partners, Safe Families for Children. So I'd love for, to, for you to join us about 15 minutes after our service ends in fellowship hall. We have the stations that are around the room, and this is a great opportunity for us now to respond in worship. One of the ways we do that is through communion, through taking the bread and the cup and remembering what Jesus has done on the cross. The cross is empty. Jesus has overcome sin and death, and because of that, those who place their faith in him are adopted into his family. And so I challenge you as we respond in worship through music to also approach one of the stations Uh, to take communion, and then also there's an opportunity to give at our buckets as well. So let me pray for that time, okay? Father, thank you that you are our Father. May that calling of you sink in deeper to all of us right now. Lord, thank you for your adoption. 
Thank you that as salt and light, we have the opportunity now in a practical, real way to care for orphans in our world, to mirror the adoption that you've given us. So Lord, we give you our worship. We give you our lives. In Christ's name, amen.